Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to a brand new episode of What the Fuck Are We Talking About? It's the only podcast that answers the question, What the fuck are we talking about? I'm your host, Ron Beek III, and I'm joined today, as always, by John Callahan, Johnny C. Um, happy to be joined by Johnny C. today. Um, he has, uh, Poison Ivy. And, uh, he's powering through it to make sure that you fine folks get a show. So, we should all say thank you to Mr. John Callahan. And we're very excited to get started today because on today's podcast... What the fuck are we talking about? It's movies. More specifically, the sequel to It Chapter 1, a little film you might have heard of. It's called It Chapter 2, Electric Boogaloo. I'm 99.9% sure that that is the title. I think I read it on a poster. But anyways, uh, the reason we're excited to get started on this podcast is not because it's a flawless film. Yeah. We had nothing but good things to say about it, Chapter 1, save for that weird Mike Hanlon stuff. Um, it, Chapter 2, we have some uh, legitimate critiques of. And uh, that's okay. You know, that's okay. Um, they can all be tens. Sometimes you go out into the world and you sit down and you experience a six or a seven and it doesn't lower your value it's um it's totally okay to do that sixes and sevens they're more common you just seem to run into them more you know and tens i mean when you get a 10 i mean there's nothing nothing better in the world than having a 10. Um, but you got to remember, there are a lot of work for you. Um, there are a lot of work, and a lot of work goes into the making of a 10, you know? They're not just born into existence. Tens are made, you know? So it's okay to experience a six or a seven. The important thing is that you value a six or seven's personality. It Chapter 2 has a great personality, and any of the shortcomings it does have, you just fantasize about a ten while you're with it. You can think about IT Chapter 1 the entire time you're experiencing IT Chapter 2, and it will raise your level of enjoyment significantly. Just general rule of thumb. Alright guys, um, so here's the situation. We want you to know that uh, John has been weighed up with poison ivy. He's got probably the worst case of poison ivy I've ever seen. Um, 
And because of that, he's kind of on bed rest, but he's powered through it and he has committed to giving you guys a show. And we should all thank John for that because that's a big thing. So thank you, John. Cue audience clapping. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, however, uh, so we're doing this using a feature on Anchor that's like a conference call that gets recorded. Um, and there is, it's, it's pretty buggy. Um, and we keep having to stop recording and then pick up where we left off and we're worried about the flow of the show and we feel like it's going to affect the quality of the content. Um, unfortunately, some things are out of our control. So most of this podcast has been John and I talking. Um, the tail end of it, we're going to go separately and just record some final thoughts. And uh, then I'm going to edit all of this together and throw it up for you guys to listen to. Um, so just bear that in mind. And uh, thanks for being patient with us and hanging in there. Yeah, we're really sorry for the inconvenience, but we appreciate uh, your understanding. You know, technical difficulties are a bitch to deal with. And we've been at this for a few hours now, trying to go back and forth, pick up where we left off and, yeah. you know, deliver some good content for you guys. So we decided this is probably the best course of action at this point. Yeah. It, I mean, we've been recording for two hours and I think we have about an hour and 10 minutes of, uh, of actual audio, which is, that's pretty abysmal. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, we, um, we pretty much go over the losers together. And uh, after that, we're going to split off and maybe talk about some of the other cast members. And um, we'll uh, maybe maybe some iconic scenes, things that we we liked, and uh, we'll go from there. And then hopefully next week, um, I was trying to think if maybe we could get like a, you know how they have like those offices and libraries and stuff. Mm -hmm. I was kind of wondering if we could like snag one of those because we'd have nice, we'd have a nice quiet area. And um, I want to look into that because I think it might be beneficial for us. Um, but we'll see. Yeah, we could figure something out. There's definitely yeah. options. All right. Um until we can afford like our own podcast warehouse, like Joe Rogan. That's, that's the, that's the next step. That's what those ads are for people. That's what those ads are for. I'm so sorry. So but. leave this on a loop. When you go to bed, leave our podcast on the loop. And... <laughs> out here. Yeah. Yeah. Help us out. Um, so yeah, that's an explanation of why the podcast is probably going to get a little weird towards the end. And uh, if me and John have similar things that we repeat, we apologize, um, but we're doing the best we can. We're new at this, okay? So just bear with us, and uh, we're going to get back to it next week. Um, John, are you good with uh, conspiracy theory next week? Fuck yeah. Want to do? We're, we're going to jump into Area 51, you think? Area 51, what's that? I don't know, but they're talking about raiding it. It looks like it's some type of college campus. There's going to be a party. Um, and we're going to go. I'm pretty sure we're going to go to Area 51. Um, see what that's all about. Hey, man, I've got my plane ticket booked and my hotel room. You're, wait a minute. You're take, you said we were going to camp. 
<laughs> you said we were going to do a road trip and we were going to camp out in the desert. What the hell, John? They're probably all fucking sold out by now. Man, I'm not stepping foot outside ever again after this poison ivy bullshit debacle. Well, you could have warned me. <laughs> Jesus Christ, dude. I'm going to be sitting out in the middle of the fucking desert in a tent. And where you'll are you going to be? The, you'll be closer to the action. I'll be in the hotel jacuzzi. You know what? This podcast thing is over. I'm, I'm done. I'm done. I've had enough of your bullshit, man. <laughs> All right. So anyways, that's what we're doing. And uh, we're going to... Uh, we're going to edit it together. We're going to give you a show. So uh, bear with us. If there's any screwy stuff with the audio, we apologize. But we did the best we could. And uh, we hope that you enjoy the episode. We'll bounce back. High. What's that? I said we'll bounce back harder. <laughs> Thank you so oh, much. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, guys. Without any further ado, here we go. It, chapter two. Hello. You made an oath. If it ever comes back, we'll come back too. Take it. It kills monsters. Do you believe it does? Let's kill this clown. It, chapter 2. Rated R. What's going on, guys? Thank you for joining us in another edition of What the Fuck Are We Talking About with your hosts, Ron and John. Yeah, we're going to kick off, uh, you know, the, the start of this podcast with talking about It Chapter 2. Mm, what do you think, Ron? Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I don't I wasn't I wasn't disappointed with it um i would i i recognize that it's not it's not flawless and i think what's tough is you're seeing it chapter two is a sequel to one of those rare movies where everything seemed to align mm-hmm. um and for me this one it didn't quite have it and um I think I have some good ideas of, of why I feel it didn't have it. But yeah, my initial, I, I've seen it twice. I saw it uh, the Thursday, uh, like preview screenings that they did. Mm-hmm. And then I saw it again with you on Tuesday. Mm-hmm. Um, I will say the second time I watched it, I liked it more, which this is typical. Usually I go into a movie with an expectation of what I'm going to get. And when I don't get exactly that, uh, I do seem to get I, I, I guess I'm married to the idea that I had in my head um, so it's one of those things that you have to like grow to uh, like I, I some movies grow on me more than others yeah. and I think that this is one of those cases where the more I watch it the more I'm going, going to accept it for what it is and not get so wrapped up in things that uh, that bother me about it um, but what what did you think? Uh yeah, I'm pretty much on the same boat as you. You know, we it's I try to go into movies not having any expectation really, because uh, I don't want to be disappointed. But with you know the hype around 
it in general and with how the first movie went, I had high hopes for this. And, you know, I, like you said, I, I don't want to say I was disappointed, but it's not exactly what I was looking for. You know, there were a lot of, a lot of, t- a lot of parts in this movie where it kind of dragged out and I just kind of sat there and I was like, all right, you know, can we just move this along? Which I didn't really get in the first movie. Um, the only, no. the silver lining to that, uh, that though, is that it's a long movie and I had times where I could take bathroom breaks and not give a shit if I missed anything. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> um, what, you come back from to the theater and you're like, what did I miss? And I'm like, they were just standing around yep. <laughs> like the entire time you were gone. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, I, uh, yeah, I, I get that. You know, I, I think that I think the pacing was definitely an issue in this movie. Um, so maybe like let's let's go through and kind of talk about criticisms, um, sure. and then maybe we'll end on a high note. We'll talk about what was good about it because this. I mean, when we say that this was not a great movie, it by no means uh, indicates that it was not a good movie. Um, no, it was absolutely I, worth seeing. So. You know, if there's any reason someone's listening to this before you've seen it, which I don't suspect would be an issue. Yeah. Um, yeah, don't do that. <laughs> because it is worth seeing. It is. Yeah. And I mean, this, I mean, it kind of, go- I think it goes without saying, but we'll reiterate that this is going to be spoilerific. There's going <laughs> to be so much fucking talk and dissection of this thing. It, this is an autopsy of It Chapter 2. Um, so... Yeah, I mean, as far as for me, I'm. I mean, I'm, I'll. I guess I'm going to get right into it. Because um, we, we already have talked about pacing in regards to it, um, and I have. I have some problems with. I think it's like I would call it the second act of the movie, which is um, basically the story is uh, Pennywise comes back. And he's starting to prey on children in the Derry area again, 27 years after uh, his final confrontation with the losers. Um, And Mike Hanlon has stayed behind in Derry and he's been researching and uh, doing his part to, uh, I guess, prepare for uh, the potential that Pennywise might return. and now he's called the losers back. Um, he's given them a breakdown of uh, why they're there because none of them can remember. There's something about leaving Derry that you start to forget uh, what happened there. Yeah. Um, and the second act of the movie has uh, Mike Hanlon telling them that they have to go and find uh, these these tokens that have to do with. Um, that have to do with their past um, things that were important to them or that uh, were tragic for them. Um, basically things that I, I guess kind of came to define them in a yeah. way yep. um, so that they can form this ritual, uh, the ritual of Chud, I believe it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and hopefully kill Pennywise is the aim. But that second act is where, you have Mike telling everybody that, okay, like you have to go and um, you have to go off and you have to find those things. And when you do, uh, we'll be able to kill it. However, you have to do it alone. 
what bothers me about the series of events with like there are these multiple small scenes and i wouldn't even call them the scenes they're like vignettes featuring each member of the losers club mm-hmm. kind of going back and um and you know experiencing some of their past trauma and it um it's that's fine and i know that you kind of have to do that uh for the story but i just don't think it was done in a very creative way or i would i would probably use the the phrase narratively conscious um mm-hmm. like it, you can't a, a group of scenes strung together loosely to me doesn't is not a narrative that's not a story you know um and i i think i have a way around that um but you had you, you felt the same way right yeah it kind of seemed like you know one thing i i look for in movies is like a nice even flow that doesn't you know where they don't try and force scenes or like just play scenes in there to like get points across and i feel like when they did like their own individual little like adventures they went on it seemed like you know it was just so obvious where like it was like there's this scene and then there's this scene and there's this scene it just seemed like they plugged a bunch of scenes together that didn't really fit in a natural flow and i know you had mentioned that you kind of got the same feel with it's kind of like you know, Captain America, the first Avenger, you know, it's mm. kind of like a, like a montage type story, uh, storytelling method. Right. Yeah. And it just, for me, like Captain America, the first Avenger, um, I was so, I was gutted when I saw that movie. I mean, I, I really, I was so excited because I, out of the Avengers characters, um, Captain America, Captain America is probably my favorite. Um, mm-hmm. he's, uh, so so going to see his movie and the way that it was it was talked about like it was like done in the style of indiana jones and it's like yeah and indiana jones has its fair share of montages but like you can't the the entire thing was like here's his war here is him fighting to get to the red skull to fight the red skull and like all of that stuff all of that groundwork to get to that point is um it's given like lip service. It's not, it's not really there. And um, I felt that, I found that really disheartening and I, I feel almost the same way here, but it's not, it's just, all of these things are gone into in depth, but it doesn't really feel like it's done for a reason. Uh-huh. And I don't, I don't really feel like you get um, any extra insight into the story it just feels like okay well we we only have one more movie so let's try to get in as many pennywise moments as we can um and to me i i have a i have a solution and i think it's i think it's relatively simple um and what it is is it's the turtle i think (laughs) i i really think you need the turtle because the turtle is the turtle is the counterbalance to Pennywise, right? He's the good, benevolent uh, cosmic being, and Pennywise is the evil, malevolent cosmic being. And there's something that's sort of like, in the book, it's dealt with a little bit more, but like you see Pennywise dispatch of children um, very easily and 
without much effort. But time and time again, he's like within inches of the losers and he can't touch them. He doesn't kill them. And he could, right? Absolutely. That's where the turtle comes in because the turtle's the explanation. Like what Pennywise is trying to do is just scare the kids into submission. If, if he scares the kids, they can't hurt him um, because these kids have been chosen by the turtle. These kids have been chosen. They've been brought together by the turtle to try to destroy it. And to me, if you had this, if you had those flashback scenes, but you almost like focused a little bit more on Pennywise's dilemma, where you know that like he can't really hurt them. Um, And I know that it's sort of like it would change the feel of those scenes. But I, I think like, I think it would be interesting to have because ultimately that's where the story goes right like you have i think it would be interesting if in this movie you almost feel like the kids are the dangerous ones you know Mm -hmm. like you're kind of seeing it from pennywise's perspective where it's like i have a huge problem because i can't touch these kids based on some magical mystical force i can't do anything to fight them off and i know that they could kill me because I'm bound by some, some, you know, ethereal magic uh, to not hurt them. Um, so I think it would be, I think it would fix that, and it would make those scenes that are strung together by nothing at all, really, in this movie. It would make them feel like it was explaining another part of the book in a more concrete way. Yeah. Um, and, and yeah, I would, I would punch that up. You know, I I would change that around a little bit. So tell me a little bit more about this turtle, because I didn't read the book, so I don't know all that much about it. Um, At what point is is it towards the end that the turtle appears? Yeah, yeah. And almost without provocation. The the ritual of Chud is a vastly different scenario in the book um which is uh it there's something about like they they have to like come face to face with pennywise over and over again and it's like like almost like i think they like have to press their tongues into each other it sounds so weird like pennywise will come face to face with them and they come face to face with pennywise and then they stick their tongues out and they have to like press their tongues into each other you know into each other's tongues and look into each other's eyes and like when that happens in the book bill like there's a there's a sequence where bill gets like ripped across space and time and like winds up on the outer edge of the universe and he's looking uh past the barrier of the known universe and like outside of it he can see the real pennywise like this evil malevolent force that's trying to get into the universe. Um, And the turtle is like almost like a warden of sorts. And they sort of understood it as um, sort of this universe's answer to God, more or less it's God. And just like in the movie, um, the ritual of Jude does not go as planned. Um, 
but in the book it's for a slightly different reason um is because pennywise killed the turtle um when bill is out there like in the universe like he sees like the skeleton of the turtle um floating out there in space and to me um not having these elements in the movie it breaks your suspension of disbelief yeah there's a bunch of times where pennywise is face to face with one of the members of the losers club just one-on-one and he doesn't take advantage of that opportunity and it would, you know he kind of already got this sense like that they can't be touched they can't be killed so there were a lot of scenes that kind of dragged out where Pennywise is with one of them, you know, in that kind of like that strung together, you know, montage like, you know, those grouped together scenes where he could easily just kill him, you know, and, and he doesn't. So it just kind of drags out and you're kind of like, all right, come on. I know, I know nothing's going to happen here. So what are you wasting my time for? Like, this isn't suspenseful. You know, it's it just seems kind of like a waste of time. Yeah. in a movie that's already two and a half to three hours long. Right. And I I really um I I don't I don't quite understand the um I don't I, I don't quite understand the the approach. It, for me it, there's an obligatory thing where it's like, well this is kind of what happens in the book. So that's what we're doing. And uh-huh. uh, part of that, it does, doesn't quite work. And uh, that's a shame. Yeah. So, yeah. I. Uh, do you have any other criticisms? I mean, for me, that was the big one. Yeah. So something that really bothered me, you know, in the beginning of the movie, like you said, we have Mike who's calling all the members of the Losers Club, telling them them, telling them that, He's back and they got to come back and, you know, they all kind of willfully listen and they go, you know, except for Stanley, of course, you know, he's the one that remembered the most, it seemed like, and kind of took action on that really quick, but they all get together. They go to the Chinese restaurant and they're all kind of having a good time and, you know, they, they all went back and you assume that they kind of got a feel of what was going on from the call. Like, you know, they don't exactly remember what happened, but when he called and said, Hey, you got to come back. It kind of felt like they all understood that Pennywise was back. And Mm -hmm. after that, there's a moment where they're all kind of like, Oh, the clown Pennywise. And they all stop freaking out. And like, Mm -hmm. if I knew that I wouldn't have come back. And it's like, what do you mean? Like someone calls you from your past and you're like, I'm just going to go back. It's like, you didn't know that something was seriously wrong. Did you get that? Um, you know, in retrospect, yeah, I could definitely see that. Um, for me, I think that that's another case where knowing that the turtle exists would help the story. I I, I feel like for me, I really do feel like that clears up some of the, um, inconsistencies on both sides of the fence, good and evil, because to me, like, once you introduce the idea that there's like some sort of magic involved in all of this, it's like they are being pulled and pushed into position 
mm-hmm. um, by forces that are kind of beyond them. So when Mike says, you know, you made a promise, I think it feels like it's like, okay, well, I made a promise when I was a stupid kid. I guess I have to go through with this. Let me drop everything and go to Maine. Yeah. Um, but in reality, I think that like, I think that having the idea of the turtle, even in an abstract way where you don't even have to explain it, just show us something fucking weird and then uh let us try to like hammer that into what the story is you know Mm -hmm. um because i'm a fan of those types of narratives that they don't give you everything um they show you but they don't give you everything um and to me that that that's the solution if you just show the turtle um make it known visually that the turtle is part of uh, bringing the losers together um, and make it known that Pennywise is kind of bound by some it, it... me and you watched Lost um, when it was on TV and Lost kind of had that same quality of like there are these rules that are not terribly clearly defined but your narrative is subject to them anyways. Um, And I feel like you could have done the same thing here and it would have been fine. And I mean, I know some people are probably like, oh my God, like you're saying, do something that Lost did because some people think that that show was a failure. I still don't fully understand that. Um, Yeah, I don't feel that way either. No, that's bullshit. Um, But I think that the, I think that, using that same approach where it's like there are some it's almost Lovecraftian where it's like there are some things that we just as humans we don't we don't understand and I think that you could make the argument that the forces that exist in the universe that Pennywise and the turtle are a part of um, they're beyond our comprehension so it's okay that we don't get it you know Mm mm-hmm yeah, I could definitely buy into that because, you know, I just wasn't sold because I, I, I was under the impression that they, you know, getting that call, at least they kind of had the understanding that, you know, Pennywise was back in some capacity, but there was some sort of danger that they had to go back and take care of. And I was just kind of caught off guard that it's they it seemed that they came to that realization after they already went back, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think that... um. I think that just a little bit of that like woo-woo strangeness where even if they had talked about it, like they, they talk about how like they got scared when they got the call from Mike. Um, yeah. But if they had talked about like, okay, we got scared, but then also immediately thereafter, we got this strange push. Like it felt like we were being drawn back to Derry, that it wasn't really in our control anymore. Mm-hmm. And like, have that be something where it's like what you know why 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 is that you know and maybe mike doesn't even have an answer for that you know yeah just the sense that you know that they were because that's kind of how it was in the book it's almost like they sleepwalk back to Derry. like they 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 just all of a sudden it's like okay i'm i'm back you know and and they didn't really make any decisions about how they were going to get back they just did it and uh, i think that if they maybe had given us that a little bit in the dialogue of the movie it might have helped um kind of explain that that thing you know 
Yeah, I agree. Uh, I don't think that I have too many other critiques. Um, and again, those are relatively big ones because these are what set the stage for the movie in the case of what you brought up. And then what we talked about in the very beginning, it's like, that's about an hour's worth of material that I think needs some heavy workshopping, you know? Yeah. Um, so it is, though it is a large criticism, um, despite the fact that I, I really feel like those are the those are the two things for me that stood out as uh, being strange. Um, well, and maybe some editing, some editing I didn't like um, when they did the uh, the leper puke on Eddie thing, mm-hmm. and they like switched over to that like just call me angel you know that like song like cuts into the scene in a really bizarre jarring way Um, very quickly too it very quickly happened before you could even realize what was going on because you're in that moment you know he's fighting off the leper he's choking him and then like they kind of slow-mo the puke in his face and they go to the song and before you even realize what's going on they cut right back it seemed weird to me yeah, it was awkward. And, and also, I think the association, like, I, I even wonder if you change the song, if it would be better, because I feel like the association for me is all Deadpool. Like, oh, yeah. <laughs> they use that. Was it the second one that they used that song? I don't even remember. I, I, I very vaguely remember them using that song in the slow-mo and, you know. Yeah, it just was like, I, I'm getting too much, um, like, interference with what I'm watching right now. Now I'm just thinking about Deadpool. I think if they just let the scene run for like, you know, a few more seconds to like, cause they were clearly trying to be funny about it, but it just happened so quickly. And I was so thrown off guard. I didn't really have it. But the time I realized what was going on, it just seemed like kind of ended. But if they kind of like, you know, wanted to have that to be like a lighthearted, funny scene, which they kind of had a lot of them in this movie, but this one in particular, if if they wanted to kind of, you know, drill that humorous part across, they would kind of drag that part out a little bit. You know, that's the only thing I could think of that wasn't dragged out that I was like, ah, maybe they should have spent a little bit more time on that. Right. Um, yeah, I agree. Uh, that, you know, and I think that like in large, the humor works in this movie. That's one of like the big things, but I feel like um, maybe the editors don't have the sense of timing. Like, just leave it to the professionals that are on screen and, and don't interfere. Um, I mean, obviously, like, this is a directorial choice, too. So I know that uh, that it's not all the editors. But it just, it, for me, it just was, like, it was just awkward. That, that, that moment in particular stood out to me as being, like, why, why are we doing this? Um, so I... Uh, yeah, didn't really work for me. I also wanted to say one thing that I thought was kind of funny was the first time I saw it, when they were like, when Mike Hanlon was like, yeah, you got to go back and get your tokens. Um, I thought it was like they cut to Bill walking down the street and he saw his bicycle in the window of the antique place. And I was like, there's no, no way that that bike is going to fit in the little wooden leather thing that Mike Hanlon has to burn stuff in. Like, <laughs> I was like, 
how how are they going to fit that bike in there? <laughs> That's what I was thinking as they were kind of performing the ritual. I was like, what if their token was too big to fit in it? Because it didn't really have much room to fit anything of uh, anything of a large capacity in there. <laughs> no, no. I thought that that was like a, it like led me wrong, and then it was like, oh, it's the paper boat. Okay, that's fine. <laughs> um, yeah. Ritual thing seemed all like cliche and and cheesy to me. Um, it's just it's like well, you know, thinking kind of like outside of things here. It's like well, how do you how do you kill Pennywise? You know, if you haven't encountered him, the like if you survive, it seems like the only way to kill him is to survive a first encounter with him. Cause all of these things kind of seemed like it was important to their story when they were younger, when they first encountered Pennywise. But if you've never encountered Pennywise, will any old token just work? You know, like I, I don't, it yeah. was just weird. You know, it, it seemed like it was kind of set up to, it's like, yeah, you need to have had like a first encounter with him and then wait 27 years and then you kind of have the tools there to get it done type deal. Right. Yeah. I, I don't know. That, that is kind of strange. Um, my thing is like, I, I do feel the sense that it's tied to defining moments of their lives. But yes. I also I, I don't feel like it's tied to any one type of defining moment because Bev and Ben's are positive, you know, Bev mm-hmm. and Ben, are, you know, Bev has the, the, the poem that Ben wrote her and Ben has the yearbook page that Bev wrote on. Um, so those don't seem negative, whereas, you know, Bill's is Georgie's boat. Um I don't know. Well, Mike Hanlon's is the rock that Bev threw at Bowers to defend him. So that's that's positive. I don't know exactly what I, what the um, what the intent is because I think Mike at one point in this says you know it's the the things from the day that these bombs were formed or whatever, and it's like well Georgie's boat had nothing to do with that, you know. Oh. Yeah, I mean, they did mention that the token is uh, sort of a sacrifice. And I guess it could, could just symbolize things that you otherwise would keep and hold dear to you. So, like, I guess it can kind of symbolize you're kind of letting go um, this token that kind of represents a large part of something that means a lot to you, you know, because had um, – what's his face? Had um, – Bill found Georgie's boat, you know, outside of this whole ritual uh, witch hunt thing. He probably would have kept it, you know, as a memento of some sort, you know, something that would have meant a lot to him. And this was kind of like, hey, here's like a huge part of me that I'm just getting rid of as like offering up for a sacrifice. So maybe like that's what it came down to. Yeah. I, I don't know. But then I feel like that's the thing is i feel like all the tokens are like wildly inconsistent i'm like stanley's was a fucking shower cap like what (laughs) yeah in a moment that didn't seem like it had much significance to the story where they kind of just go underground and you know they give him he gives them all these hats to keep spiders out of their hair and you know it's like what i don't see why that's like a token that could be sacrificed i mean right after he like kind of like opens up a little bit and like shows what he's feeling inside but Mm -hmm. i i just don't think i mean if stanley was gonna have one 
um, like it would be the microphone from his bar mitzvah, right? Or, I'm, I'm sorry, I don't know uh, Jewish customs or something, so I might be completely wrong about what all was happening there. But like he had that, that scene uh, that was held at his temple um, that Richie was there for. And it was the scene where like he, in the middle of everything, goes completely off the rails and is just like, you know, I'm a loser and I always fucking will be. And it's like his, uh, that to me is a more defining moment than like, hey, I got us all some shower caps, you know? Yeah, I agree with that. I'll find that fucking microphone. But then like logistically speaking, like what are the odds that 30 years later they have that microphone like hanging around in the temple? You know what I mean? Like nah. it would be impossible to find Stanley's token without Stanley. Um so yeah, it felt it that felt strange. I mean, I, I might even argue that that's the reason the ritual didn't work is because his dumb dick friends were like, Oh, well, you know, I guess Stanley's token is a shower cap. Like, <laughs> Get it. Um, yeah, I was gonna bring that up, but more so in the fact that Stanley wasn't there, you know. But that that does make sense. Though. They just picked the stupid fucking shower cap as as this ritual token, and they put it in there. And the ritual of Chud is just like, what the fuck is this? Yeah, yeah, it's weird. It's very strange. And, and, and then I- Richie's uh, his coin from the arcade. Yeah. That that's tied a little bit more to like the uh, that was like a day when like his um, maybe one of the first times that his sexuality really got questioned. Um, but again, it's just a random token from the arcade. It's not the token, right? So that's not the same thing to me. Like that's uh-huh. it's all wishy washy stuff, and like. I think if you were going to, if you're going to, because the ritual, the ritual is different in the movie than it was in the book. Right. And I I think that, I think that it did, they did have tokens in the book, but I think that these ones that just feels like they didn't plan for it as much. So they had to on the fly be like, okay, like what, what are the tokens? What are the tokens going to be for these for this version of these characters like what what are their tokens going to be and uh felt a little sloppy to me yeah i agree yeah um but i i think that i think that i'm okay with criticisms for now i I feel like we kind of hit them uh do you feel the same I agree. I think this is a good time to get into the positives and what we liked. But first, this quick word from our sponsors. <laughs> cool. Um, do you want to start? Um, I'll let you start. Yeah, I'll let you take the reins on this one, and then we can kind of build off. Okay. Um, so, I think, again, um, casting, they, uh, they, they nailed it. Again, Im- um, impressive as fuck. Yeah. Yes. Impressive. <laughs> God <laughs> damn it. Uh, uh, I knew it was going to come up. I fucking said it. I said it right before we started recording. I was like, this motherfucker's going to make fun of me. I oh, it. I'm gonna. <laughs> I couldn't like, get off that easy, man. Uh, yeah, no, I, I thought they were really good. I was surprised, though, 
that I felt like the ones I liked the most were the ones that I was least anticipating um, or least knowledgeable about, at least. Um, I think the obvious front runner again is Richie and I'm starting to wonder if it has more to do with Richie as a character than it does with the actors portraying him um, <laughs> because it just <laughs> seems like the first movie I was like yeah Richie fuck yeah um, but I think like him bringing levity to the movie um, is good and also in this movie kind of Bill Hader he does a great job um, and he has a lot of stuff to do um, uh, Richie in the book is it's never confirmed exactly what his sexuality is, but there's a number of times that he calls Eddie cute. Um, and usually it's in like a, like you kind of think of it in like a, he's poking fun kind of way. Um, so the fact that they went a little bit more explicit with it in this movie, um, I was surprised, but I also thought that it, it really worked well. And Bill Hader did, a terrific job of um, kind of bringing out that aspect of the character and letting it be um, subtle and showing that Richie's a little bit tormented by uh, by that aspect of himself. Yeah, there were a lot of uh, points of focus in this movie where they where they showed Richie and Eddie kind of bickering and, you know, kind of how they were when they were kids, but it seemed like they focused more attention on it this time around, you know, it's like kind of like focused on their relationship and where that was going to go. Yeah. And like, it showed that their bond was a lot tighter than it may have like let off. Right. Originally. Um, Speaking of Eddie though, the guy that they had casted to play Eddie did an awesome job. Not only does he look like him, but he was like on point with his mannerisms. Oh, no doubt. Um, he was probably my second favorite out of the group, to be honest. Uh-huh. Um, I think, I think Bill Hader um, deserves crazy props for what he did. Um, and I think that James Ransone, we decided last week was the guy that was playing Eddie. Um he he did a he did a really nice job of like like you said it's the mannerisms it's the way he talks the facial expressions um kind of like the excitable energy um and i thought that that was uh i thought that that was a really really good choice and i think that they gave him a lot of fun material I i think one of my favorite moments there's two um one of them i think you were out of the theater for um, which was when they were they were packing up and getting ready to leave um, after they had talked with Mike and everything. Um, you know, Richie's downstairs. He's talking with Bev and Ben, and Richie like turns towards like the upstairs of the of the inn that they're staying at, and he's like, "Yo, Eduardo, let's get a move on," you know. And uh, <laughs> and a few minutes later, they show Eddie, and he's coming down the stairs. Right now, presumably, he's only coming back to Derry for like a week right he has these two massive suitcases like they they go up to like his ribs and he has one in each hand and he's like negotiating down the stairs with them and right before something happens and like we cut away from from him you just hear him say okay i'm almost all set i just have to grab my toiletry bag 
and <laughs> <laughs> the fact the fact that he has these two massive suitcases and a toiletry bag i was just like this this is eddie like that's so fucking funny <laughs> to me um i i really i did i did really enjoy him um and you know it's weird because there's those are the two big successes for me um i think uh ben was well done um and that dude had ben's just like the the good guy you know uh he's the good guy of the group there's no question and um i think that that guy radiates decency you know um and he really brought that out and i i I enjoyed him a lot yeah i agree with that uh Beverly, she, um, you know, she, she, Jessica Chastain did a really good job of playing someone who, you know, clearly has gone through shit as a kid, you know, outside of Pennywise, you know, she seems kind of timid a bit, Mm -hmm. like troubled and, you know, I I was really happy with her performance. I have, I, I have mixed feelings about her. Like, I feel like she played, I feel like she played who Beverly was on the page pretty well, but I, I just don't feel the the melding of her with uh, Sophia Lillis's performance. Like, there's just something about her that she just, she just seems maybe a little bit too different. I know that they have like 27 years of development as people, but that stood out to me is like, I couldn't quite see her as bev anymore um and i mean they get into like she's in a atrociously abusive relationship with tom rogan um who in the book plays a bigger part he actually like follows her to Derry, um and uh he's kind of drawn to Derry the same way that uh they are and how Bowers is. And that's another part of that whole thing where like Pennywise can't actually hurt them. So like he needs to use other people to get them off the board. Uh-huh. Um, so like, that's the whole thing with like Henry Bowers and being like, okay, like I brought you your knife back and you still need to kill them all, kill them all, kill them all. So like that, that was like another, like Tom Rogan was kind of that another angle of that where forces converging on Derry that are there to try to stop them from doing what they're planning um and so so I guess I understand like the the stark personality change because when you're with somebody like Tom Rogan you're um you're sort of you're changing and you're starting to like you said like that timidness um, starting to have to constantly be on your toes and make sure that you don't make a mistake and the nightmare of like walking on eggshells that happen. People yeah. who are in relationships, you know. Well, you know, I think as as a kid, I think she tried to be the strong one because she had to be. Mm-hmm. And you know, I think she tried to keep a positive attitude. And you know, when you're young, you're kind of like even going through shit. You kind of have like this sense of hope. You know, this you have the strength, but you know, over time, and you just get tired. 
you, you just get you just spend so much energy trying to be positive and be strong that eventually you just kind of like you just break and you just kind of lose that fire that you had you know especially like you said being in an abusive relationship you know she was kind of following following suit from the experiences she she had you know kind of being having an abusive parent you know she kind of and then you know when you, you when you get older you think things are going to be different and you kind of find yourself in a very similar situation as an adult you kind of just crack and i feel like that's that's the point that she was at you know and then when she reunites with the losers club i feel like she gains a bit of that spark back but not to the extent that she would have as when she was a kid yeah i think she she felt safe with them but also not safe at the same time with you know pennywise lurking around every corner right yeah i i think that i think that that pretty much hits the nail on the head you know I, I think that like Bev just through life experience kind of has developed into a different person than she was um, she definitely seems the most changed out of the group um, and I you know I don't know it, 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 I think that I think that on repeat feelings it might become more obvious you know yeah um what I will say about this was um, the I liked I didn't like uh, I thought it was interesting the way that they dealt more with her past and to me like the the like not okay strange creepy horrible relationship that she had with her father um got like kicked up another notch from where it was in the last movie and you realized like holy shit like this was this was a nightmare uh situation um and i thought like in particular the like him sitting there looking at his uh his wife's picture and like smelling her perfume and then like spraying it all over Beverly. And like that whole moment was just like bone chilling. Um, and just so hard. And uh, I think that they did, they found like, they found like the perfect scene, the perfect moment to showcase what things were like without, without having to like go into great detail into it it's just enough to let you know exactly what was going on and it's very disturbing yeah it was alluded to in the first movie and confirmed in this one that things were taken to a whole nother level yeah it's uh the way that it was done it was just so so haunting and like sophia lillis um she's phenomenal man like the the conflicted because there's two, there's like not two. There's there's several thousand things that she's doing in those scenes, and I think in that scene in particular, there's 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 fear of him. So because of that fear, there's compliance. Um, there's pain, um, and. You know, maybe maybe not just in that scene, but like later on, like he's asleep on the couch at one point and she like walks in and she like 
pulls the blankets up on him and like you know puts a kiss on her two fingers and puts it on his head you know what I mean and it's like I think that like it's really hard to understand what somebody in those situations goes through and I think that she does a really good job of being like yeah like this is this is real like it's hard to explain and it's messy and it's like she loves her dad but her dad's also a dirtbag you know and yeah and I just feel like um I feel very much that uh Sophia Willis is able to balance that stuff uh incredibly well yeah I agree with you there yeah. Um, so beyond that, um, I guess I want to talk about Mike Hanlon um, because obviously I, that was a point of contention with me with the first movie was that I felt like they took away um, things that he brought to the table as a character and they just attributed them to other people. And I, you know, it becomes like blatantly obvious in this movie. Like, so like in the book, Mike Hanlon's the one researching Derry, but in the movie, it's Ben. Now, Ben grows up and he becomes involved with architecture, which again, a major part of the original story that isn't in the first movie, but then is explored like it's just factual in the second one. Um, I think like the closest thing you have to Ben being involved with like any architectural things in the first movie is like, I built a lighthouse for my school project. Like that, that doesn't cut it. So now he's involved with architecture, which is exactly what happens to him in the book. Um, And Mike Hanlon all of a sudden is like, Oh, I'm going to start researching Derry. And it's like, well, why, why did you change it to Ben in the first movie? Like, because like it, it just makes sense if Mike was interested in researching Derry and stuff, he would just continue doing that as an adult. He would continue trying to be a historian. So like, what was the point of that? If you weren't going to change up their adult characters? Yeah. It didn't make much sense to me. Yeah. And I mean, I know that like people change and evolve and like, you're not the same person you were when you were a child, but it just is like, for me, it's just those are those are character traits. You know what I mean? Like those are deep seated character traits. So regardless of how much you develop as a person, I think your innate interests don't change that much from when you're a kid. Um, so I really kind of like I felt I was I was happy that they didn't make Mike a drug addict, which I know was the thing that was originally talked about. Um, so it was great that that didn't happen. But it just, it was, it's strange in retrospect, some of the choices that they made with the first movie and and they didn't make good on. And I almost wonder if the director, uh, if he, if he felt like maybe he understood that he had misstepped and then this movie, it was like, all right, well, let's try to like go back to what was originally in the book and and go from there. I, I don't know. 
Yeah, because Mike, you know, he played a much larger role in the second movie. And, you know, he kind of just, he seemed like he knew everything, like about all this ritual, uh, about this ritual. And he was just so confident. He was like, yeah, we just got to do this, this, and this, and we can kill him. You know, he kind of walked around with a sense of confidence and, like, he knew what the, what the fuck he was talking about. Like, he's been, t- the past 27 years of his life was dedicated to this moment. Right. He was like, he, Reminded of like a Gandalf, like a wise leader. Like, I know exactly what to do to eliminate this threat that's been taxing us, you know, our whole lives. Right. Yeah. I, uh, you know, for me, I just think that, like, I don't know. It, it, it is. It's, it's one of those things where it just, you look back at what they did in the first movie and it's like, you change things without any plan about what you were going to do later. And I think that like, it wasn't like the title card, the, the like end title card on the first movie was just like it. And they didn't know whether they were making a sequel. It's like, I think they, they always had eyes on making two movies. So to commit to some of those broad changes that they made in the first movie without thinking about where you're going down the line and without having a good reason for changing those things, um, it's a mistake. I, mean, I, I don't have anything else. I don't have any other way to, to put it. It just, I don't, I don't think that there's, I don't think that there's enough reason to arbitrarily decide that Ben's the researcher of the group. Um, Except maybe that the way that they structured that story, they hadn't introduced Mike at the time that they introduced the concepts of uh, the bad things that are happening in Derry. Mm -hmm. So, like, then introduce Mike earlier. Like, what the fuck? Like, I, I don't really... That that whole... The, the they did the the whole thing that they did with Mike Hanlon it was it was just it was not it wasn't a good choice in the first movie and then I feel like backtracking on it this time it like made me feel a little bit better about the mistake that they had made in the first movie but it didn't take that mistake away you know yeah yeah um yeah I don't know about that um Outside of that, I mean, we have James McAvoy is playing Bill. Um, I think Bill seemed like Bill. He was pretty good. Um, I don't know that he's... I still don't know that he's my first pick for uh, for picking up where Jaden Martell left off. Um, I have a hard time seeing him in Jaden at all. Um, yeah. Yeah. Jaden talked early on about who he wanted to have cast as him. And he threw out Toby Maguire and that just, that just works for me. Like that seems obvious. Um, but I like James McAvoy. Um, and I thought he gave a pretty good performance, but I just, uh, something a little bit off there. Yeah, there's nothing really that stood out that was negative, too negative or too positive about him playing uh, that character. Mm-hmm. 
I just don't know. I don't have too much to say about that. I was, you know, satisfied. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he, he did the part well. Um, and I just, I just like James McAvoy. I, I think he's a good actor. Um, and yeah, I was fine with him. Um, did we hit all six? Is that them? We're missing Stan. Yes, yeah. Stanley. Not a big part of the movie in terms of appearance, like screen time. But mm-hmm. uh, I think the guy looked a lot like him. And oh yeah. For the little that we saw, I think had he been a bigger part of the movie, I think he would have done a really good, uh, good job portraying Stanley. Yeah, I um I liked his performance a lot. Understated, and um, you could tell that he was carrying that like trauma with him. Um. You know, you just see it in his face when he realized why Mike was calling him and the fact that he, like, really remembered uh, everything almost as soon as the call came through. Um, And I think that that kind of goes into that piece that you were talking about where, um, like, the, the idea that they didn't remember and then they went to Derry, it's like there's there's what would have happened if they had you know like stanley remembers all too well what happened and why he's heading back and his solution is like oh i'm just gonna off myself get out of dodge yeah so stanley stanley seemed to remember more than everybody else and i wonder why why that is why he was more prone to the fear you know because they all felt the fear but he he felt it to another level and you know the only thing i think of is he had a really close running with pennywise where like his entire face was in pennywise's mouth but then i think about beverly who was like who had a really close encounter where she was floating you know and she was like stuck like she got she got the the worst of it when it comes to Pennywise. And other than that, I mean, I, I, I can't see why he was the one that was just like, I got to end this. I can't go back. Yeah. I mean, I think that like, um, there's just a level of trauma that, because you got to admit Stan was like, the, there's, there's a difference between Stan and Bev and it's that Bev isn't sheltered. Bev is, you know, her, the evil of the world lives in her house. You know, it's right there. Um, I always get the sense from Stanley that he's another kind of like Eddie, where he's been pampered and smothered for most of his life. Um, so I think that like, you know, for Bev, it was like she wasn't that. She says even in the first movie, like, I'm not afraid of you. And it's like, well, yeah, of course she's not. She's seen shit, man. She's seen the worst of the worst. Um, Stanley, I think he was scared shitless from, uh, the, from, from the drop. I mean, even from the very beginning of it, chapter one, I mean, that kid's fragile, you know? And, um, I think that it was enough that, uh, he just couldn't, he couldn't cope with it, you know? And he didn't want to, he didn't want to go back. He didn't want to experience the trauma and, I think like his letter at the end of the movie saying that like I knew that I wasn't prepared to face him again. And if I had gone, I was worried that I would get everybody killed. You know, um, I don't necessarily 
feel like that's a good reason to kill yourself. Uh, <laughs> I feel like you could have been like, yeah, I'm sorry. I gotta, you know, this, uh, this, um, I don't want to miss my, my programs. So I'm going to, I'm not going to go to this, uh, this little meetup with you guys. Um, it almost felt like a little bit of an overreaction maybe, but, um, at either rate, it was tragic. So there's that. Yeah. I, I would be more convinced that he did it out of fear, you know, and that he was a coward, you know, he mm-hmm. killed himself out of cowardly motives, not him coming back in that letter and saying, Oh, I did it because I knew I wouldn't be strong enough. So I was just going to hold you guys back. I knew if we all faced it together, I would have just messed it up or, or whatever. So I took myself out of the equation, you know, that I'm not, I'm not sold on. It seemed like the kind of try to give him some redemption, there like some sort of brave act in in this cowardly moment he had but i'm just not sold on it you know i i feel like i would be way more convinced that he kind of remembers more than they do and he like he feels it like that level of fear is so deep and he's like there's no fucking way i'm going back to Derry. i'm out yeah and i mean i honestly i don't know what like if his motivation Is it, is it that he thinks that if he doesn't go and remains alive, that they'll still die? Like he feels yeah. like either way, they're, they're all going to die if he's involved. And that's why he kills himself. But it's like, how do you know that? Yeah, even on a hunch that if he's not there... Even yeah. if he doesn't go and doesn't kill himself, he just assumes that they'll probably die. But that's not enough for me anyway to be like, all right, I definitely, this is what I got to do. Yeah. Like based on a hunch, I'm going to kill myself. Like yeah. that's, that's like, wow, what a good friend. Like yeah. Stanley Uris, he's the MVP, man. Like, just being like, just being like, well, you know, I don't know. It, it could be one of those things. If I go, you're probably going to die because I'm going to be scared. And if I stay alive, I mean, maybe you'll still die. So the only option is for me to kill myself. I mean, that's the logical conclusion. And it's like, no, it isn't. <laughs> Just don't go. It's okay. You made a promise when you were a kid. Like, it's not a big deal. Just be like, I was a stupid kid and I don't want to go. Uh, I'm staying home, you know? You're, um, you're, he's better equipped to face it now than he was 27 years ago. And I think they did pretty good for the most part taking him on as kids and now that he's an adult and has has had a chance to grow you know (laughs) yeah i mean you're absolutely right i I, you know i can't argue with that i i I feel just the the stanley stuff um it didn't bother me so much in the book but it definitely um stood out like a sore thumb in this movie And I don't know if it's maybe it's just the book is more long form. Um, I also think that the the Stanley suicide happens, I think, very early in the novel, too. So that by the time you get into like explanations as to why um, it. uh, Maybe it's faded from from memory a little bit. I mean, you still know it was a suicide, so maybe that isn't it. I don't know. In the book, it didn't seem as bad to me or as strange. 
So yeah, this is um, the point in the podcast where John and I are completely trampled by technical difficulties, and we have to split off and record separately. So I'm going to start out by showing you guys uh, what John's final words are, and uh, then I'll pick up from from there and uh, see what we get. All right. Thanks, guys. All right, so before we wrap this up, I'll go on, go out on some final thoughts here, maybe some moments that stuck out to me in the movie. Um, so obviously there's that scene in the very beginning where uh, a group of dairy degenerates, as I'd call them, they jump these two men for having a relationship that extends past friendship, and they brutally beat them on the bridge. And while this is going on, you're kind of hoping for Pennywise to show up here. Um, at least long enough to distract the gang and allow the victims to get away. But that doesn't happen as one of the guys gets thrown over the bridge into the water. And at this point, um, the other one, the, the bullies run away, and the other one runs down, and he sees Pennywise holding his lover. And even in this moment, you're kind of hoping for some mercy here. And that I, that thought quickly gets shut down as Pennywise takes a giant chunk out of the guy's side. And then you it cuts to the scene of all these balloons that are under the bridge. Which I thought that scene was really cool. That part was, that was a good visual there. You know, kind of set the tone like, hey, Pennywise is back. He ain't fucking around. And it kind of set like a dark tone for the movie, which, which is what I was hoping for. I was hoping for... You know, a darker feel, um, a lot of suspense, you know, overall, like, hey, this is, we had the movie with the kids, they're adults now, things are going to get real, and I feel like it didn't deliver on that overall, which I was disappointed in, but, I mean, overall, I thought it was a really good movie, it's definitely worth seeing. You know, there wasn't really too, too much else that stuck out to me. Um, there's the scene in the end where Eddie gets killed. You know, where he kind of plays the hero and, you know, he throws the that part of the fence into Pennywise's throat. And he's like, you know, really thinks that he, uh, that he defeated him. And you're kind of expecting something bad to happen here. So it wasn't all that much of a shock as he gets penetrated through his stomach and thrown to the side and... You know, you got Richie being like, hey, man, we got to help. We got to help. We got to get him out of here. And Bev kind of like breaks the news to him. Like, man, there ain't no saving him. He's done. So that was pretty sad. You know, when they finally get out, they, they kind of recreate that scene in the first movie where they jump off the cliff into the water. You know, kind of having fun. And, you know, reality sets in. Like, oh, you know who would have hated this? Eddie cleaning off in a, a, a dirty pond. They all kind of laugh and kind of give their nod to him from there on out. But yeah, that's about it. I mean, I don't really have too much else to say. You know, it didn't quite deliver what I was looking for, but it's still worth seeing. So, thank you for listening. Uh, be sure to tune in for our next episode. This one was kind of a rough one for us. The technical difficulties kind of ruining the flow of the show. But something we'll work on and we'll deliver better content in the future with no interruptions where we can kind of just go off and get you a full podcast through and through. Thanks.
Yeah, um, we will definitely uh, be working hard on uh, making sure that uh, we don't have to deal with such a janky uh, setup again. Um, we tested out this uh, conference call thing last night, and it worked really well. And today, it just um, just isn't quite there. But yeah, I um, I want to kind of parrot a little bit of what John brought up. Um, that opening scene was uh, just as tragic and uh, mean as it was in the book. Um, I mentioned it the last episode that I, I knew... I had a pretty good idea that that scene was going to be in this movie. And um, I was excited to see it because it is another one of those really iconic, strong um, visuals. The, the balloons under the bridge, like, that's a, that's a big one. And um, I was happy to see it. Um, but, yeah, relentlessly bleak, that whole series of events. It's hard to watch. Really hard to watch. Um, props to the victim... Uh, whose name I almost said last episode, but I doubted myself. I shouldn't have. Adrian Mellon. I don't know why I was having a terrible time with names last episode. I think I'm getting senile. Um, but yeah, Adrian Mellon, uh, love that moment where he's been pretty thoroughly pummeled, and then all of a sudden he's, uh, he looks up at his attacker, and he had made that comment about Meg Ryan wanting her wig back. To this guy, which was fucking hysterical, but in this moment where he's like beaten and bloodied, and he's you know his lips split, his eyes swelling shut, you know, and he just like looks at the guy that's attacking him, and he's like, "I still hate your fucking hair." I was like, "Bravo, that's that's fantastic." I, I like that he got to have like a badass moment, you know, um, and yeah, Pennywise's kill of him was. Uh, just super tragic, and, um, again, it's just hard to watch, sad, sad stuff, and, and like John said, I, I had hoped that that would set the tone of the movie as well, um, but it really didn't, it didn't feel that way, um, the thing that I always say about the, the book is I feel like when they're adults, Pennywise is having to try a lot harder to, uh, scare them, and, I was sort of hoping that they would go in that direction with this movie, but I, I actually, I think the first movie was scarier. Um, and maybe that's partially a psychological thing, because I know that they were kids, so you're more worried about what's going to happen to kids than you are adults. Um, you know, maybe maybe that's what it is. Um, but yeah, overall, I, I did think that, um, I did think that they did a pretty good job with the movie, and I think Richie's emotional arc is a highlight. Um, they made it a lot more explicit in this movie that, you know, Richie had romantic longing for Eddie, um, and I thought that that was really well done, and I think Bill Hader um, put a lot of heart and soul into what he did, and... Um, I'm really, I'm really happy that he got that part. I know when they first cast him, I was on the fence, um, but fantastic performance. He's probably the standout. And um, John talked about them being at the reservoir, 
And uh, that that scene when Richie started crying when they were reminiscing about Eddie, it um, it hit hard. It, it was it was sad. You know, you hate to see, especially characters that you've grown to love. You hate to see them uh, hurting. And there was a lot of hurting uh, in this movie. I, I meant to mention it when we were talking about Jessica Chastain, but the entire sequence um, between her and Tom Rogan uh, was just very difficult to watch. And um, it was in the book, too, um, but it, it's a lot different with reading the written word gives you the feeling, but something visceral about putting sequences of violence like that onto film, um, it was hard to watch. Um, other than that, I mean, I think, I think they did a, a great job. Like I said at the start of this, I think saying it's a six or seven is probably accurate. I saw it twice before we did this podcast. And the first time I saw it, I was really like, I don't know. But this time, I think I liked it a little bit more. I might lean a little bit more to the 7 or 8. Um, there are things that I would change, for sure. I was happy to see Paul Bunyan in this one. That was cool. Um, I liked the, the callback to The Thing with Stanley Uris. Um, and his head in uh, the Niebold Street house. That was cool. Um, also, fun little thing that, you know, it's blink and you miss it, and honestly, I wouldn't have realized it if it hadn't been pointed out to me. Um, Eddie's wife is played by the same actress that plays Eddie's mom, which is just... That's perfect. <laughs> I, I that that was you know those clever little things. I also think I spotted the director in the scene that takes place in Keene's pharmacy, um, which was cool. I think he's like an aisle over from Eddie perusing. I'm pretty sure that's him. Pretty distinct looking fella. Maybe maybe a slightly older slightly more rock and rollish version of uh Shaggy from Scooby Doo. <laughs> That's how I describe him. I don't know. I think he looks like Shaggy from Scooby Doo. Um he's doing the Flash movie. Um he's the next in a long line of directors that have come to and then left the Flash movie. So we'll see. Um I hope he sticks around. I, I think he's a good director. Um I heard some people complaining about the CGI in this one. Uh, it's, like, it's right in line with what was in the last movie. Um, so if you thought, if you if you watched the last movie and you didn't have anything to say about the CGI and now suddenly you're all offended by what this movie brings, it's like, it was always that way. I think for me, like, one of the worst moments of CG, and I'm I'm so sorry to whoever worked on this scene. I, I know that you probably care uh, immensely about what my opinions are, because, you know, I'm the authority on these things, right? Um, but I think, like, one of the things that always stood out to me was the shot of the boat, um, Georgie's paper boat, like, floating across the street after he falls down and gets hit by that second barrier. Um, mm, there's just something about the physics of that. Uh, I don't know. 
you almost are like, why couldn't you just take a paper boat and and shoot it practically? Uh, I don't, I'm not a fan of this. Like everything needs to be done with CG because it's easier. I, I just I don't I just don't think it works so well. I think you need real life to kind of influence what all is going on. Um, trying to think if there are any other quick things. Uh, the sequence with uh, at Beverly's old apartment uh, in Beverly's old apartment building that stood out to me. That was a great one, and uh, love the build up. That was one of my. That was a great scene in the um, in the book as well, and they they did it justice. Um, also, the CG on the kids. Um, I don't know exactly what the series of events were. Um, I I tend to think that they made the first one knowing full well that they were going to do a second one. I, I'm I would put money on that. Um, and if that's the case, I think maybe. And I know you want to kind of work on these one at a time, and you have deadlines and stuff that you need to meet. But for me, I kind of think that they should have shot the kids earlier. Um, the CG, it's just, just to the, to the side of the Uncanny Valley. I mean, some people might not even realize that it's happening, but for me it was blatant and really distracting, and it just made me think about why didn't we, um, why didn't we shoot this earlier, you know? Because you could have shot all of you know, if you knew you were doing the sequel and you knew you were going to rely on the kids, like, you just shoot it when you shoot the first movie. Um, but that's okay. I also think that, um... My anticipation is that we're going to see a director's cut of this film that's all spliced together. And I think that parts of this movie might work better in context with parts of the old movie. I think that if you put it all together, you might have, um, you might have something that works better as a single coherent piece, um, rather than two parts. Um, so I'm very excited at the prospect of that happening, and I know Warner Brothers has done this stuff before, so I would be I'm I, I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful that that will be the case. Um, but yeah, it chapter two. Uh, great cast. Um, pretty good direction. Um, with some odd choices um, that extend into the editing as well. Um, I like the sequence with the little girl with the. Uh, the birthmark on her face uh that that was right up there with like the georgie stuff the i think that the horror of watching um a complete and total monster play with the emotions and maybe lack of knowledge of of a child is um genuinely disturbing and i think that scene is right up there with um the Georgie scene from chapter one. Um, yeah, I I, uh, I think I overall liked the movie. 
seven to eight out of ten, and uh, I would see it again. I probably would see it again. Alright guys, that concludes another episode of a hard-fought, <laughs> an extremely hard-fought uh, WT Fada podcast. Um, I'm about an hour later than anticipated putting this up because you don't even want to know. And you probably can tell the amount of editing that went on either just from the audio or also, if, you, if you're if you listening to this on, on Anchor, um, you'll be able to see, even though I'm going to title all the segments uh, the same thing, you'll still probably see them whiz by every once in a while um, and get replaced by a, a doppelganger of themselves. Um, and it is 100% because that is uh, the end and beginning of the next segment, right? Um, so, like, it's the end of one segment and the beginning of the next one. It was a nightmare trying <laughs> to put this all together. Um, but I did the work. I think it's gonna be I think it's gonna be seamless. I, I think it's gonna be pretty good. Um, and there are some audio distortions here and there. We're sorry. We, we felt like we, we thought that this was gonna work and we committed to doing it and then we didn't want to let you down. so we, uh, we just stuck with it. And uh, John's a trooper, man. John's John really is a trooper for uh, sticking it out, and I'm I'm very grateful that he um, he pushed through the pain, man. Um, we talked a little bit about it right before we started talking about it, chapter two. We want you to know next week we're doing something a little bit different, and we're very excited. I'm pumped about what's going to happen next week. My only concern is. Uh, is whether or not we're going to have enough time to talk about how absolutely batshit insane some of the things surrounding Area 51 are. Um, in particular, Bob Lazar. Uh, I've been doing some research on that guy. Holy fucking shit. Um, but yeah, no, I'm, I'm very excited, and I'm happy that uh, we got it done. And uh, I can't... I'm happy that we got this show done um, because it was a brutal, brutal exercise in uh, Murphy's Law. Um, but yeah, we uh, we thank you for hanging in and uh, for being here with us. And uh, we'll be talking to you again very soon. Next week, next week, Wednesday, we're going to make Wednesday the dedicated podcast day. Um, and uh, we... Hope to uh, hope to see you there. All right. So have a good day wherever you are. I hope you're having a. Uh, I hope the universe is being kind to you. Um, and we'll be back on Wednesday. So take care, guys. All right. Bye.